0: Hello again, podcast listeners, I am Dr. James Cole, and I'm back with another episode of Healthcare in America, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Today's topic focuses on the flood of medical information out there, which influences patients, doctors, nurses, politicians, and people of influence who shape our society. I find it interesting how people are influenced with respect to their healthcare decision-making. Certainly a lot of people turn to the internet to get what they must presume to be solid, reputable, and honest information. Of course, online websites can give great information, but may as easily offer up misguided, inaccurate, or even fraudulent information. But internet websites may not be the greatest source of healthcare misinformation. There is no doubt in my mind that online videos and social media postings are a huge source of misinformation. This is most exemplary right now during what will likely be known for years to come as the year of COVID. I cannot believe how much misinformation, how much ridiculous information is circulating out there, including so many conspiracy theories espoused by alleged scientists and apparent healthcare professionals who should know better. This not only sows seeds of confusion, fear, and doubt, but it's dangerous to those who listen to it and absorb what clearly deviates from what the mainstream professionals know to be true. Even some well-meaning, highly respected physicians and surgeons have been sucked in by the propagandists. For those working the front lines, living through the difficulties of an overtaxed ER or ICU, knowing the truths of COVID, toxic and divisive misinformation can be downright demoralizing. Some people digest social media postings as if they were words of wisdom from a scholar's vault of best-kept secrets. But all too often, they are nothing more than a set of repostings and reader commentaries of some freelance writer's personal medical opinions based on very limited observation or worse yet, unfounded medical conspiracy theories. Even the most dutiful of physicians have difficulty discerning what information can and cannot be trusted. Whereas there used to be a core set of medical journals and scientific research publications which most of us turn to, to learn of the latest and greatest healthcare information, There are now more journals, both in print and on online format, than any of us could reliably count. And whereas some of these journals are reputable, many are not. In fact, there are a number of journals out there that will print just about anything, regardless of whether or not any scientific work actually went into the generation of their publication. The most reputable of the medical journals out there use a peer review process, whereby a panel of experts reviews the journal article prior to being submitted to the editor for final review. Ordinarily, this should eliminate a lot of study publications, those poorly designed or poorly executed, from ever being printed. However, even though the peer review process is very helpful, it too is not perfect. However, reading something in a peer-reviewed journal is much more reliable than what is printed in the myriads of non-peer-reviewed journals out there. But the problem is that the reader is often not savvy enough to distinguish between the two. And finally, there is intense pressure among the academics, and the pseudo-academics, to publish. As the saying goes in many of the universities, publish or perish. To put that differently, if a professor doesn't publish a certain number of journal articles in a particular period of time, that professor's employment status may be in jeopardy. Thus, perhaps, in some of the smaller or less prestigious academic programs out there, regardless of a paper's quality or its probability of being able to be reproduced, publishing something is better than publishing nothing. There's likely a research paper or a scientific article out there on almost every topic imaginable. And just when the medical community has adopted a particular publication or a landmark journal article as the go-to standard for that particular subject, a subsequent research paper often soon gets released refuting the previous conclusions. This can be confusing for non-medical folks who rely on doctors to guide them on their healthcare journey. But it should be somewhat alarming as well, as there are plenty of charlatans out there peddling miracle products and breakthrough treatment supplements backed up by their own poorly constructed and published biased research, all of which benefits them financially. Thus, one should be wary of anything allegedly backed by research claiming to produce revolutionary results, which sound too good to be true. One should also be wary of claims coming from a single source, or from a small group of individuals who have an axe to grind over a particular topic. And one should always question the validity of a research project funded by the very organization which would benefit most by a favorable publication supporting the drug or product in which they have a financial interest. Legitimate medical research is a highly complex process to which dedicated professionals devote huge portions of their career. Most legitimate medical research is conducted in dedicated research facilities at universities known for excellence or in laboratories sponsored and monitored by the federal government so as to ensure accuracy of the data being collected and analyzed. Legitimate scientific and medical research is tedious and time-consuming and often builds off of other legitimate work performed at other bona fide research labs. It may take years or even decades to do all the work required to study something to come to a scientific conclusion and then to publish the findings in a reputable peer-reviewed journal. Thus, a product invented a few months prior will likely not have been sufficiently studied to come to any solid conclusions. Some publications reflect an analysis of old patient charts or past experimental data, information which leads to what is called a retrospective analysis. This is probably the easiest research to conduct, and is often legitimate and reputable, and many of our most prestigious institutions generate excellent articles through well-performed retrospective studies of former patients' charts, but retrospective studies are not as good, and their conclusions are not necessarily considered to be as reliable when compared to what are known as prospective randomized studies. But rather than get too far into the weeds right now and all that, let me just say that just because something was researched, and just because something was published in a scientific journal does not necessarily mean that the study was performed accurately or that the conclusions can be trusted. Thus, where some of the plethora of healthcare research out there can be lumped into the good category of healthcare in America, some must be characterized as bad, and another lot just plain ugly. Before I get any further on this topic of medical research and healthcare misinformation, I want to uh, take a walk back in time and discuss with you the history of medical research. What healthcare was like prior to medical research, when it all began and how, and the evolution of how medical research was conducted. In the late 1800s, prior to the turn of the 20th century, the practice of medicine often included ridiculous treatments which had absolutely no proven benefit and oftentimes was downright toxic and harmful. Examples include the once common prescription of mercury or arsenic based potions, now unequivocally proven to be terribly toxic. Amphetamines were often the treatment of choice prescribed by the old-time doctors who wanted to cure depression, alcoholism, and obesity. And once the x-ray machine was invented, doctors bought them with abandon, prescribing radiation treatments for everything from acne to sore joints. Of course, we've since learned that x-rays are not benign, and most are familiar with having to wear a lead shield to protect certain parts of our body to eliminate exposure to the harmful rays. But there were no such protective shields back then, and the earliest generation of x-ray machines gave off huge amounts of widely scattered x-rays, which later caused a variety of cancers and even caused repeatedly x-rayed limbs to shrivel. And when Madame Curie discovered radium, doctors prescribed radioactive drinking water to treat gout, rheumatism, arthritis, neuralgia, sciatica, sinusitis, and even diabetes. Of course, it's never to drink high doses of radium a known cancer-causing agent, and certainly there was never any proven benefit to this incredibly harmful treatment regimen. The practice of medicine also included electrical therapy, where men were given battery-powered belts worn around the groin to remediate complaints of nervousness, impotence, back pain, and poor memory. I imagine that a few jolts from that belt cured nothing, but they probably did get them to stop complaining to their doctor. Over the years, tobacco smoke enemas, applications of animal dung paste, ointments, which intentionally created large blisters, and even ground-up mummy powders were all parts of the doctor's armamentarium. All treatments, which were never studied, had absolutely no research to back up any of their claims of cure, but were commonly prescribed and were used nevertheless. Believe it or not, the first actual medical research in the U.S. began during the Civil War under the direction of General William A. Hammond, a NYU School of Medicine graduate and the first physician to specialize in neurology and mental illness. He was an experienced researcher prior to the start of the war, having worked in Europe while on sick leave prior to the war's beginning. He published research papers on neurologic effects of snake venom, sleep, mental illness, and personal hygiene. When the Civil War began, he was called back home to the United States where he assumed the rank of general and was eventually appointed to the position of Army Surgeon General. As such, he ordered the medical officers of the Union Army to collect meticulous data on the war wounds managed and the treatments prescribed. One of his surgeons, Lieutenant Colonel Joseph J. Woodward, was found to be an exceptionally meticulous collector of medical data. And following the war, he was assigned to the Surgeon General's office, where he authored the book, The Medical and Surgical History of the War of the Rebellion. This was the first published series of evidence-based recommendations based on large numbers of patients treated and good data collection methods. Major Walter Reed was another well-known Army medical officer who conducted much of the research which led to the understanding of mosquito-transmitted illness, whose subsequent evidence-based disease prevention recommendations allowed for the completion of the Panama Canal Project. In 1943, the Army Surgical Research Unit at Halloran General Hospital in Staten Island, New York, was commissioned. The mission of this first official research organization was to study the use and effectiveness of newly discovered antibiotics. Study was conducted on servicemen who had suffered war wounds, and in addition to looking at antibiotic effectiveness, new methods of wound care were studied there as well. On October 30th of 1948, the results of the first-ever randomized controlled research trial was published in the British Medical Journal. This article was titled Streptomycin Treatment of Pulmonary Tuberculosis and was authored by Austin Bradford Hill. This was a landmark research paper because never before had a randomized controlled trial been performed and published. This set the new standard for research as this randomized controlled trial separated patients into two groups, all by random chance, and subjected one group to a controlled treatment protocol using the antibiotic streptomycin, while the other group served as a control and received a placebo. The effectiveness of the two groups were compared side-by-side, and the streptomycin group clearly outperformed the placebo group, and thus, streptomycin became the first scientifically proven treatment using the best research methodologies, even by today's standards. Randomized controlled trials quickly became known as the best, most favorable forms of medical research. Yet, even today, plenty of medical research does not follow this method. Why is good, reliable, high-quality research important? Because... It has been alleged that most of the research published in today's medical and scientific journals is misleading, false, and some is downright fraudulent. During the entire 20th century, during the period covering the majority of most of our lives and all of our parents' lives, the majority of healthcare provided and prescribed was not based on any good scientific evidence. In fact, less than 10% of all medical practice during my father's era was based on good quality evidence-based research. Sure, a lot of what worked was passed down from physician to physician, from generation to generation. But was there really any evidence that most of it worked? Well, rarely. Despite the fact that perhaps 50 million scientific papers have been published over the years, the vast majority of the recommendations made in these papers throughout the history of the U.S. medicine have not been based on the best conducted research trials. In 2005, a rather astounding paper was written, which claimed that most published research findings are false. Now, that was a bitter pill to swallow for most of those in the scientific and research communities. And whereas some of the author, author's claims have been refuted, many have been supported. And for the sake of completeness, I feel that it's worth talking about this paper. The author claimed that the results of most scientific articles published cannot be reproduced. That is, if another researcher studied the exact same subject matter and seemingly repeated the same experiments, that in far too many cases, differing conclusions would be drawn. He also claimed, and I'm paraphrasing here, that too many researchers inappropriately rely on mathematical and statistical methods, which aren't necessarily accurate. And the two greatest reasons given as to why so many studies cannot be reproduced are one, too often study groups are too small, and two, there's too much research bias. So what am I talking about here? Far too often researchers come to conclusions based on real results, but because the groups compared were often far too small, Random chance was what led to the results observed, and thus inappropriate conclusions were drawn which could not be extrapolated to a much larger group. Statistical analysis requires an adequately large sample size to come to an accurate mathematical conclusion. A simple example of this would be the flipping of a coin. We all know that there is an equal chance that flipping a coin will either come up heads or tails. We all know that the chances are 50-50, but what if somehow we didn't know this? And what if we decided to conduct an experiment to determine that answer? We decide to flip a coin 10 times, and based on the number of heads or tails, we would come to a conclusion as to the actual percentage of a head versus a tail coming up. If in that 10-flip experiment, by random chance, seven heads and three tails were flipped, and based on that small sample size, we would conclude that the chances of a head coming up is 70%. If, however, we flip that same coin 100 times and 59 heads came up, then based on that larger sample size, we would conclude that the chances of a head coming up is not 70%, but actually 59%. But if we flip that same coin 10,000 times and 5,020 heads came up, then we would much more appropriately conclude that there was a statistically equal chance of either a head or a tail being flipped. Thus, the exact same three experiments yielded very different results, two of which led to very false conclusions. Thus, it is important for researchers to use large enough sample sizes to reach statistically significant and thus accurate conclusions. Research bias is the manipulation of the findings or a distorted reporting of the study variables leading to inaccurate conclusions. For example, if a patient is included in a study group comparing perceived alertness after taking an experimental pill versus taking nothing, The mere suggestion that the study pill might give him or her more perceived alertness may cause the study subject to report greater alertness when, in fact, there was no actual change. In this case, there was perceived bias on the part of the patient, something that was influenced by the fact that he or she was being told that taking the pill might improve alertness. This can be an important factor in research that does not blind patients as to whether they are taking a study pill or an identically looking, feeling, or tasting placebo. Another example of bias might include comparing the post-surgical wound infection rate in two groups of patients, where one group of patients was treated with a novel new topical skin cleanser and another with one commonly used. If, however, those selected to be in the experimental group were thinner and otherwise healthier patients, patients who likely did not have diabetes or likely did not smoke cigarettes, A lower rate of post-surgical wound infections in the new topical skin cleanser group would lead one to conclude that the new product was superior when in fact, it was the healthier patient factors which actually led to the results. Thus, research bias does affect conclusions made from very real results, and without strict elimination of this bias, conclusions may be very untrustworthy. High-quality medical research often gives evidence-based recommendations. But only those who truly know how to perform research and only those who truly know how to interpret medical research know how to gauge recommendations made in published studies. Some doctors and nurses know how to do this, but many do not. Those who do know how to interpret medical research know that recommendations made can be classified into five groups based on the quality of the study and the quality of the scientific process. Level 1 study recommendations are based on high-quality, randomized and controlled research trials. You should see those two words, randomized and controlled, somewhere in the early part of the paper. Patients are randomized into groups, often by a computer program rather than a human being. This is important so as to eliminate bias. Controlled means that the study group is compared to a group which isn't given anything experimental. These studies are also prospective in nature, that is, patients are studied only after the experiment has begun, and the only results used in the analysis are from those in the study group. No results are selectively pulled in from outside of the study group, and no data from past experimentation or observation is included. Level 1 recommendations come from large study groups, where the number of subjects enrolled was sufficient so as to yield reliable statistical significance, enough to distinguish between which of the treatments worked over and over and which did not. In general, these are studies with a large sample size so as to eliminate the possibility of chance influencing the results. Level one recommendations are considered to be the cream of the crop, yet most recommendations made in the 50 million published scientific papers and publications out there are not level one recommendations. Level two recommendations are still quite good and relatively reliable, but are based on lesser quality yet still randomized and controlled trials. There is a greater chance that bias might influence the conclusions made from these studies compared to those used to make Level 1 recommendations. Level 2 recommendations come from studies that are still prospective in nature but often have insufficient numbers of study subjects enrolled and thus the smaller sample size might lead to inaccurate conclusions. Level 3 recommendations are based on non-randomized studies. Patients studied are often hand-picked, Often these are retrospective studies, meaning that patient charts were pulled and cause and effect results or outcomes of past treatments are used to generate conclusions and make recommendations. Controls are often inconsistently applied as groups compared were not necessarily a part of any prior study. Level three recommendations should be carefully scrutinized and taken under advisement. Level four recommendations are made based on a handful or on a series of observed case reports. Often, there was never any actual study. Rather, a number of people reported a perceived cause and effect to a particular treatment or drug, and recommendations were then published in some sort of scientific or medical journal. Often, experimental controls were either poor or entirely absent, and more often than not, there was no credible statistical analysis. In a nutshell, Level 4 recommendations should be considered interesting, something to consider or perhaps study in the future, but should not be considered as having come from well-conducted research. Level 5 recommendations are based on someone's thoughts and opinions. Often, it's an expert opinion, but even experts are influenced by their own bias. No actual research was conducted in the generation of Level 5 recommendations. The so-called experts have undoubtedly had a lot of experience in their field and have probably read a lot on the subject matter, but in the end, they are nothing more than opinions. Whereas these would be akin to following the opinions and recommendations of a trusted mentor, Level 5 recommendations often have the greatest flaws and should never be considered as having been based on evidence-based research. I realize that this particular subject may not be the most riveting material to listen to, and that's why I'm going to take a break from it all right now and insert my usual shout-out to something that truly epitomizes the good of healthcare in America, and that includes all of the doctors, nurses, and scientists who support the specialty of organ transplantation. In 1954, the very first human kidney was transplanted, and that was the genesis of an entire new specialty of both medicine and surgery. I say both medicine and surgery because transplant surgeons truly are specialists in both disciplines. I consider them amazing surgeons who operate on the macro scale and micro scale, making large incisions to remove and then insert entire kidneys, livers, hearts, and many other organs. To ensure that these organs survive requires meticulous vascular surgery, often by way of microsurgical suturing, which reconnects arteries, veins, and other tubal structures. Following and often challenging procedures, these same transplant surgeons serve as the immunology specialists, finely tailoring various cocktails of anti-rejection medications during their patients' hospital convalescence, and often for the rest of their patients' lives. Prior to organ transplantation, patients with chronic kidney failure were eternally subjected to a lifetime of thrice-weekly hemodialysis, consuming several hours of time each session. Prior to organ transplantation, patients with liver failure were doomed to an often certain premature death, as no other remedy existed to mitigate the loss of a failed liver. Prior to organ transplantation, patients with the most advanced stages of heart failure existed as cardiac cripples always teetering on the precipice, looking down at the chasm of death. But organ transplantation changed all of that, and presently almost 35,000 transplants are performed annually, allowing patients who would have otherwise lost all hope another chance at life. And that is truly something good about healthcare in America. The number of organs which can be transplanted is quite remarkable. The list includes livers, kidneys, pancreas, heart, intestine, bone, and skin. Whereas the sad reality of organ transplantation is its dependency on the offering of the otherwise healthy organs of our nation's deceased donors, the ever-increasing number of thoughtful citizens who made a conscious decision to donate in the event of the unthinkable live on in some way in the bodies of others through the gift of their organs. Whereas several thousand people on the transplant list die each year awaiting an available organ, increasing awareness and willingness to donate gives countless organ-failure patients and their families genuine hope. And thus, today's shout out goes to all who work in the field of organ transplantation, and I thank them for all that they do. And with that, I want to get back to my main topic of healthcare research and healthcare misinformation. As I mentioned, it's estimated that there have been at least 50 million scientific or medical publications generated, and most published findings are likely incorrect in some way. And in some cases, they have been proven to be flagrantly fraudulent. There are several examples of fraudulent studies published by drug companies whose findings no one else could replicate. The same applies to the field of psychology in which a single researcher made up data in 50 papers published. And tobacco companies are known to have published fraudulent research in the latter part of the 20th century so as to promote the sale of cigarettes. In 1998, Andrew Jeremy Wakefield published a fraudulent study claiming that autism and Crohn's disease were linked to the administration of the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccines. And in 2012, Dr. Fuji, a Japanese anesthesia researcher, was found to have forged the results in almost 20 published scientific papers. But even well-meaning researchers have published their results and have made claims and recommendations based on poorly designed, poorly executed, and poorly analyzed studies. Perhaps many of you might be asking yourselves, How can this be? Well, for one, there is a tremendous amount of pressure to publish. When I was in medical school, very few medical students and residents were involved in ongoing research. I spent part of a year conducting research in a microbiology lab, all under the supervision of an accomplished PhD scientist, and I quickly learned that research was not my cup of tea. I also conducted animal research during my residency years, mostly because I was selected to do so and it was kind of an honor to work for my mentor, but I really didn't enjoy most of it. But I did learn a lot, and I became very familiar with all that is required of good, solid, and reputable research. But it seems that far too many medical students and trainees of many different healthcare disciplines are being pressured into performing research these days. I can understand why a lot of professors are under a lot of pressure to publish. After all, they are employed, at least in part, specifically to conduct research and to publish papers. But students and trainees are often encouraged to perform research either as a means to pad their resume or to become more competitive for future academic positions. But this does not account for the 50 million publications, translating to approximately one new article published every 18 seconds. Open access journals have in many ways contributed to the enormous number of publications out there, most of which require the author to pay to have his or her article published. Whereas each area of science and medicine has a handful of prestigious journals, which most of us read, countless other less prestigious journals exist merely for the sake of publishing something, anything for that matter. If a colleague has a research article accepted for publication in one of the most esteemed and respected journals, it is considered a high honor. It may take years of research, data abstraction, statistical analysis, and writing and rewriting before an article is published in any one of these journals. Most often, these esteemed journals are peer reviewed. That is, a group of highly respected subject matter experts reviews each of the journal articles submitted, and only after they pass their extremely rigorous standards might the article be accepted for publication. But far too often, lesser quality journals have no peer review panel, and in some cases, just about anything can be accepted for publication. This was exemplified in recent years when an author intentionally submitted obvious false articles to over 300 journals. He wanted to see who was checking the quality of his research. The author felt that none of his articles were ever worthy of publication. However, about 60% of the articles he submitted were in fact accepted for publication. I am not a researcher. The last scientific paper I published was over 20 years ago, and I wasn't even the lead author. Yet every single day, I receive up to 10 email solicitations from medical and scientific journals I've never even heard of within and outside of the United States asking me to kindly submit my latest research paper to them, preferably by the end of the month so they can meet a publication deadline. I receive solicitations from journals catering to those who specialize in cancer care, blood disorders, metabolism, the basic sciences, and a whole host of others. Clearly, these people have no idea who I am because a simple internet search would alert them as to my area of specialization. I have no business publishing anything in these journals, yet they still court me, why? Because there are plenty of people out there who will pay to print these journals and journals without articles are worthless. Thus, one must be aware that just because something is printed in a scientific journal or publication, it cannot necessarily be trusted. And then there are the online healthcare websites where anyone can find virtually anything regardless of its validity. Countless online websites are misleading, and whereas I'm all for free speech when its content proves to be harmful to a person or to a body of people, I do not support it. And because so many of these healthcare websites cater to so many people when the information is harmful, misleading, or downright fraudulent, that merely exemplifies the ugly side of healthcare in America. At least 10% of the online healthcare websites out there peddle false information, and in one analysis, 37% of the websites actively promote false claims. And even more unfortunate is the fact that the internet has become one of the most popular sources from which many Americans get their health information. And very often these online healthcare articles get posted or shared with friends on various social media platforms millions of times. Of course, plenty of these articles are worth reading, but so many are not. But the real problem is that the overwhelming vast majority of non-medical online readers out there have no way of knowing how to interpret which healthcare information is is legitimate and which is not. Alternative health websites can be particularly difficult to discern. For example, a particular well-visited site touts marijuana to be an effective, proven cure for cancer, claiming that marijuana is a natural form of chemotherapy. However, the National Academy of the Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine disagrees. Sometimes these sites make wild claims, stating that, for example, ADHD can be cured with magnet therapy, even going so far as to cite several medical studies which allegedly support their claims. But when these particular references are reviewed, there is no mention of ADHD, and thus the references are actually not referencing anything relevant. Thus, turning to the internet cannot only be misleading, it can give false hope and dissuade those afflicted by these diseases or illnesses from receiving well-established medical therapies which do have proven track records. I realize that after listening to all that I've just spoken about, many of you might now question all of the latest studies and quoted medical research which doctors use to make treatment decisions. My goal of this segment was never to sound the alarms or to create unfettered panic and doubt, but merely to enlighten you to the truth. My goal was to make everyone aware that just because you read something in a research study and just because some doctor quoted something in the medical literature justifying a new type of treatment, it doesn't necessarily mean that the information was accurate. There is nothing to assure the average reader that recommendations, recommendations, have been based on reputable or well-conducted research, or that whatever conclusions made will not be disproven in the next study. But, and this is a big but, frankly, in my opinion, I do not believe that everything we do in healthcare necessarily needs to be supported by best conducted research. For example, there is plenty of medical research which endorses administering any one of a number of potent blood thinners to patients who have a variety of medical conditions, such as atrial fibrillation. The research demonstrates that taking these medications decrease the risk of stroke and a number of other unrelated complications, and the benefits of these drugs outweighs the adverse risk of these drugs, including bleeding complications. That is true, but I'm not aware of any well-conducted studies specifically looking at whether or not using these medications on the most frail and deconditioned of older patients who have well-established fall risks is advisable. Because people in my specialty are the ones who typically manage the catastrophic outcomes of anticoagulated trauma patients, injured from something as trivial as a fall from standing, I am personally reticent to recommend that an old, frail, frequent faller continue taking these potent blood thinning agents. If one exclusively relied on the medical research to guide the practice of medicine, nearly everyone with atrial fibrillation would be on a potent blood thinner. But common sense tells me otherwise. And that is what many of us in the business call the art of medicine, being able to make decisions and prescribe treatments based on an entire career of accumulated knowledge, experience, and wisdom, including some well-conducted research. Several generations of doctors who preceded those of my era successfully practiced the art of medicine, managing everything in medicine, surgery, pediatrics, obstetrics, and gynecology, and so much more without research to back up most of what they did. In fact, most of the thousands of pages of medical and surgical texts which I poured through during my residency years were not necessarily based on high-quality medical research. And much of what I was taught, the surgical tips, tricks, and pearls of wisdom, may not have been based on any research whatsoever. And do I still rely on the essentials of those texts, tricks, and pearls to guide a lot of what I do? Yes, I do. I do read a number of reputable medical journals so that I can stay current, but I don't necessarily adopt everything that I read. And whereas I haven't personally conducted any actual research on any of the countless surgical procedures and techniques I've performed for decades, I don't necessarily feel the need to change what's been proven over and over to work well for me, for my surgeon colleagues, and for my patients. I definitely want to comment on all of the conspiracy theories out there. Right now, it seems that we have at least two pandemics, one being a COVID pandemic and the other being the litany of conspiracies surrounding COVID. But conspiracy theories during a pandemic are nothing new. The great European plague, the Spanish flu, and the SARS and Zika pandemics all brought out the conspiracy theorists who poisoned the populace with misinformation. This is common during periods of uncertainty where people feel powerless, threatened by the unknown, and are having difficulties coping. Often conspiratorial theorists contradict the opinions of the vast majority of the experts. There is often a tone of suspicion that someone is out to get someone for whatever reason, or that a a small group is trying to keep the rest of the population in a position of subordination. Conspiracy theorists often claim some degree of persecution, claiming that they have been victimized in one way or another. And in the end, most conspiracy theorists do a lot of damage, all for some sort of personal gain. So I caution any of you who read or listen to anything forwarded to you on social media, be careful. Do not get sucked in. If someone's posting seems like revelations of some sort of super-secret insider information, often claiming that a small conclave of rich and powerful people or organizations are trying to manipulate the rest of the world, it's probably not worth the time you will waste stewing over it. So what, if any, recommendations do I have for those out there who might want to know what kind of medical information they should feel is likely trustworthy? Well, for starters, It's probably not all that helpful for non-medical folks to read the scientific journals intended to be read by physicians, surgeons, scientists, and medical researchers. Unless you are already well-versed in the nuances of reading and interpreting scientific literature and know how to distill the body of often very complicated and confusing information detailed within the body of these papers, trying to read through them is probably a waste of your time. Knowing that there are plenty of doctors out there who don't know how to pick through the fine points of a lot of these articles, I believe that non-medical readers might get misled without even realizing it. Perhaps one might ask his or her doctor their opinion on a particular subject matter should anyone have a specific interest in the latest research. Most often, the subspecialists will be quite familiar with the publications in their own particular field or area of interest, but may not have any current knowledge outside of their specialty. For example, I often read the Journal of Trauma and the Journal of the American College of Surgeons and a few others from time to time, but I don't usually read the other specialty journals. And so when I'm asked by friends and family, as the doctor rep, about the latest on a topic well outside of my field, I often have to admit that I simply don't know. It's not my area. I may choose to read up on the subject matter and get back to them, but there are so many journals out there that no physician can be expected to read most of them regularly. Next, if you read a news release in any of our most reputable newspapers, something which alleges to be a new standard based on some groundbreaking research, be a bit wary. Whereas every bit of what you read might be unequivocally true, it might not. That's because the spin that these newspapers place on information which sells doesn't necessarily tell the whole story. Health news writers are often not doctors or nurses, but people who merely have an interest in these type of stories. Often the hottest portions of the journal article are discussed, but not the entire paper. So when you read medical news on a non-medical forum, take it all with a grain of salt because that might be all that it's worth. If you choose to get your health information from the internet, consider a few things. For starters, don't read the garbage sites unless all you want to do is poison your brain with misinformation. There are thousands of medical websites out there and sometimes it's difficult to tell the difference between a reputable one and one which merely spews propaganda. You can trust the National Institutes of Health website to give you good, reliable information. In general, despite the counterintuitive nature of the statement I'm about to make, if it comes from a government website with a URL ending in .gov, you can probably trust it. Next, you can go to the websites hosted by the major prestigious medical schools and university teaching programs known for providing great patient care. Most of these have easy to understand sections covering a variety of healthcare topics and often will give recommendations where you can go to seek additional information. Be wary of the commercial websites, often linked to an organization with an agenda or others promoting some sort of product or supplement. Look and see who authored the web-based article. Was it an expert in the field? Someone you can look up and verify his or her authenticity or authority in the field? Is it a conspiracy theorist, who a simple Google search might steer you away from? Or might it be a savvy salesman? cloaked in a long white coat purchased at the uniform shop hoping to sell you his company's latest bottle of snake oil. The website URLs, which are not affiliated with the federal government, not a medical institution of academic excellence, or not a nonprofit organization such as a hospital, usually end in .com, and that should give you your first clue that you may be reading information not worthy of consumption. Be sure to read current material, that whatever you are reading isn't as ancient as that written in the Dead Sea Scrolls. You are not doing yourself any favors by reading up on any medical topic if the articles you are looking at were authored more than 20 years ago. And finally, if anywhere in the article you come across something making wild claims, claims of a quick fix, a miracle cure, statements asserting that the product can remedy everything imaginable, or anything which makes you feel like a conspiracy is brewing, You should immediately stop reading and place it in the circular file or simply click the big X in the right-hand corner of the webpage. In summary, I'm advising that you not be a sucker for misinformation. Know that even though America has innumerable excellent and dedicated physician researchers and medical scientists who tirelessly strive to publish the highest quality medical literature, there is plenty of junk out there. Even the best of the best research scientists published material that may not be entirely accurate, but most reputable journal articles will recommend further research should anything be in question. If you choose to read these articles, try to discern whether the recommendations are level one or two, or are of lesser strength. But always be aware that there are far too many novices, wannabes, and charlatans who publish seemingly professional material which can be difficult to distinguish from those put out by our nation's finest and take heed in anything you read on the internet, whereas what you've stumbled across may be excellent information. If it came to you in a social media attachment or if it ends in a .com URL, all I can say is beware. And that concludes today's topic of medical research and healthcare misinformation. I hope that you will soon look for my next podcast of healthcare in America, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I'm Dr. James Cole, and I once again... Thank you for listening. This podcast and the rest of the podcasts in this series reflect my opinions and do not necessarily represent the positions of any other institution or entity. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to Marie Hathaway for the artwork and for producing this podcast. And I hope that you enjoyed the guitar music because that is me playing and taking my own creative liberties. And we hope that you will again join us for our next episode of Healthcare in America, the good, the bad, and the ugly.